0: This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. Good morning. My name's Madeleine Garlek. I am Chief of the Protection Policy and Legal Advice Service of UNHCR's Division of International Protection. I'm sorry, mainly for myself, that I'm not able to join you in person there in Sydney today but I will at least have the chance to speak to you live later during your afternoon on Skype, which is a slightly more viable, though still horribly early hour for me. I'm here to speak to you today on seeking new ways forward, the process, politics and potential of the global compact on refugees. I must admit it's rather intimidating to follow Professor Ferris. The title of whose interventions is also featuring lots of words starting with P. But in addition to processes and politics, I aim to focus on the potential rather than the problems. And linked to this, I think it's essential for us to recall that we have a really important opportunity before us right now. States have made clear that they are not intending or ready to take on new obligations or binding legal agreements, but they have committed themselves to a process of work Towards a text that should provide a basis for more effective operationalisation of existing rights and higher standards of treatment for refugees. We have their engagement at the highest political level, which creates an opportunity we can't afford to miss. Some would ask the question if it's not about new legally binding standards, then what's the point? To that, the answer has to be that we have an opening in this process to articulate and identify ways to ensure better respect for the existing rules which we all know are widely honored in the breach rather than the observance in many cases today we have in the new york document new york declaration a document which for all its weaknesses does provide an important starting point and some crucial openings for discussions and proposals in areas where we currently see intransigence and restrictive approaches in many parts of the world. States in the New York Declaration have also reiterated a number of crucial principles, including the importance of respect in practice for the rights of all persons on the move, regardless of their status, and the place of the 1951 Convention as the foundation of the International Refugee Protection Regime. We at UNHCR agree that reaffirming these things isn't enough, We have to be able to move forward in order to develop and adapt and ensure respect for these principles in today's context. But nonetheless, reaffirming also has its own intrinsic value at a time right now when some states are questioning openly the ongoing relevance of the 1951 convention and other seminal instruments. The challenge nevertheless is clearly going to be how to move on beyond this and to actually come up with a text that will ensure better respect for the rights of refugees in practice. We need to aim therefore in the global compact on refugees for a document that will have practical value and impact, that will set out concrete measures for states to take and for which we can effectively make the case based on principle but also on practical arguments to demonstrate that it's in states' best interests collectively and individually to ensure functioning protection systems and safeguards for the fundamental rights of refugees. So with that objective in mind, Where are we now and where are we heading? To recap what many of you of course know, the New York Declaration articulates clearly the aim of improving the way in which the international community responds to large movements of refugees and migrants, including protracted refugee situations. Sets out a detailed list of commitments to refugees, of commitments to migrants, and commitments to both groups. In addition, it includes Annex 1, the Comprehensive Refugee Response Framework. And in that sets out elements for a response to refugee situations, which are important for application in practice in any given refugee situation. Aims of the Comprehensive Refugee Response Framework include easing pressure on host countries, enhancing refugees' self-reliance, expanding access to solutions, Uh, including resettlement, complementary pathways, and voluntary repatriation, as well as local solutions. Annex 1 calls upon UNHCR to initiate the application of this framework to a range of specific refugee situations. To date, we've identified 13 countries in sub-Saharan Africa and Central and South America, which have signalled their readiness to take part in the Comprehensive Refugee Response Framework's implementation. We will hear a stop take of that experience so far when member states and other partners meet at the High Commissioner's dialogue in Geneva on the 12th and 13th of December. Annex 1 also calls upon the High Commissioner to develop a global compact on refugees for inclusion in his annual report to the General Assembly in 2018. The aim is that this document can be considered and adopted by the General Assembly in conjunction with its annual resolution on the work of UNHCR in the autumn of 2018. The Global Compact on Refugees is going to consist of two parts, firstly the comprehensive refugee response framework and secondly a program of action which aims to facilitate the implementation of the CRRF in any given refugee situation including through identified practical measures and mechanisms for cooperation and support which will have secured the endorsement of the General Assembly. A series of thematic discussions are now being led by HCR, which aim to develop proposals for the program of action in a way that will ensure that the perspectives of states and other experts are heard and taken into account. I propose today to run through the main elements of Annex 1 and highlight some key proposals and ideas which have been identified in the course of the thematic discussions so far for potential inclusion in the program of action. Some of you may have seen the concept papers that have been been made publicly available ahead of the October and November meetings, which go into these in more detail. I should underline also that these have been drawn from contributions and input, amongst other things, from a broad range of states, experts, and other stakeholders. The contributions we've received so far are available on UNHCR's webpage linked to the Global Compact. I'd encourage you to look at them further But we are also encouraging experts and others to continue to submit ideas and input to UNHCR to inform the ongoing process of work towards the Global Compact. So on the first pillar of the CRRF, relating to reception and admission, the thematic discussions so far have explored ways to ensure better preparedness for and rapid responses to large movements of refugees. Preparedness and contingency planning for any major event that can affect a country's territory, potentially including large movements of refugees, takes place in relatively few countries, and these tend to be the ones that do not receive significant numbers of arrivals. Discussions have thus examined ways to build the capacity of states to respond more effectively and to mobilize rapid and predictable international support where needed. This includes building capacity to carry out needs assessment risk analysis, planning and preparedness, mapping of local actors and capacities, as well as needs. Also, the creation of predictable standby mechanisms to reinforce staffing and mobilisation of additional resources, for example, to support local authorities. It also includes support structures that engage a wide range of stakeholders. Possible suggestions for the program of action in this area have included two interesting new ideas. Firstly, the creation of a global refugee response group, including a broad range of stakeholders, including refugee hosting countries, donor and resettlement countries, as well as NGOs, international organizations, and others. There has also been proposals to develop the idea of a solidarity conference to be convened at the national, regional, or international level at the outset of a refugee emergency to mobilise and coordinate support for the comprehensive refugee response at the earliest possible time. This could build on models provided by conferences that have been convened to address aspects of the Syria crisis, the Solidarity Summit in Uganda, the Nairobi Declaration of the IGAD Special Summit and the America's Comprehensive Regional Protection and Solutions Framework. Solidarity conferences have been most successful in the past when convened with buy-in from heads of state as well in and beyond the key affected regions. Political declarations, action statements and pledging documents have been useful tools to emerge from these to mobilise, support and galvanise political will in the past. As regards providing support to states to receive large numbers of refugees in a safe and dignified manner, the second pillar of the CRRF, we sought through this process to underline consistently providing international protection and meeting the legitimate political, economic and social concerns of hosting countries and communities are complementary goals. Possible suggestions for the program of action in this regard have included reinforcing robust reception arrangements, which are central to respond to large-scale movements. UNHCR and its partners are seeking to strengthen their ability to deploy resources and expertise to support the initial reception of new arrivals. Actions in support of this can include efforts to improve the urgent identification of appropriate reception and transit areas, establishment of settlement strategies from the beginning of a crisis, foreseeing that long-term reception needs can be met to ensure people won't be housed in inadequate facilities on a temporary basis for too long, support for establishment of psychosocial assistance at reception areas, and provision of technical advice to set up appropriate reception sites, whether reception centres, collective arrangements, or individual and community-based accommodation as appropriate. What we observe in this regard is that important lessons can be drawn, not only from experiences of emergencies in Africa and the Middle East, but also in Western Europe after Greece's reception arrangements proved seriously inadequate and international support insufficient to address the needs at different stages of the recent European experience. In some contexts, measures may also be needed to maintain the civilian and humanitarian character of asylum, recognizing the responsibility of the hosting state to ensure the civilian and humanitarian character of asylum, predictable support from the international community to fulfill this responsibility, could also be provided through the Global Refugee Response Group with international agencies such as the ICRC and NGOs. This could include, for example, expert assistance to identifying and separating combatants as early as possible, disarming those carrying weapons, preventing the use of refugee camps and settlements for purposes incompatible with their civilian character, and maintaining law and order as well as curtailing the movement of arms into refugee camps and settlements Finally, this could include running special programs for the protection and assistance of former child soldiers, particularly demobilization and rehabilitation. We also see that a crucial area of work is going to be that of ensuring that states are supported where necessary, more effectively to identify persons in need of international protection. States, especially parties to the 1951 convention, have obligations to afford protection to people who need it. But when faced with large-scale situations, the systems for identifying them and ensuring a fair and efficient procedure to determine refugee status may be overwhelmed. We face the reality that many countries' systems do not operate optimally under normal conditions and obstacles exist to securing access to those processes in many cases. Receiving countries thus may require support to scale up or establish appropriate procedures to ensure those with international protection needs are recognised and where needed accorded status and rights to stay. We thus need to consider ways in which the programme of action can ensure support for receiving states with respect to the following mechanisms. Screening and referral on arrival, identity management including registration and documentation, group-based recognition arrangements, differentiated modalities for processing asylum claims and strengthening and building asylum systems. Suggestions for the program of action in this regard include the idea of a digital ecosystem for collaboration on identity management, including registration, documentation and biometrics. This includes supporting states to conduct registration and documentation with the aim of improving operational and financial efficiencies and preventing fraud subject to data protection and privacy principles in ways that can give refugees documents to help them be protected against expulsion and a secure access to rights. We're also looking at ways to reduce licensing fees and other costs associated with the use of new registration technology, improving the quality of registration data and disaggregating it by age, sex and disability amongst other things. There's also been suggested the idea of an asylum capacity support group, from which states could receive support and assistance, drawn from the global pool of asylum experts from states as well as international organizations, as well as non-governmental and practitioner bodies that would have expertise in this area. With regards to the CRRF's focus on meeting refugees' needs, we observed that in any large-scale refugee situation, Receiving states communities might need targeted assistance to make provision for persons with specific needs, including women at risk, children, including those unaccompanied and separated from families, child and single parent headed households, victims of trafficking, trauma and survivors of sexual violence, as well as refugees with disabilities and older persons. HCR has encouraged discussion on ideas around creation of safe spaces and other mechanisms to ensure protection of children and victims of trauma, torture and other risks, as well as preventing and responding to sexual and gender-based violence. We've also looked at appropriate arrangements for those with disabilities and creating specific response mechanisms to their needs. In meeting refugees' needs, a growing body of evidence and experience suggests that where possible. The inclusion of refugees in national systems and services, as opposed to establishment of separate parallel structures, yields efficiency gains and leads to improved outcomes for refugees and host communities alike. To ensure these outcomes, however, the international community needs to support host states to strengthen national systems and services in ways that also can be seen as contributions to burden and responsibility sharing. Context We've sought to argue for the potential benefits for host states of including refugees in national and local development planning, supporting inclusion of refugees in national services such as those for health, education, and child protection, and design of development pro- projects which can improve infrastructure in refugee hosting areas, as well as aiming at reinforcing rule of law and core government functions and promoting economic and social inclusion. Some specific Suggestions for the program of action here are related to ways to strengthen health as part of a comprehensive refugee response, creating systems through which host states can call on the WHO and other bodies to give them access to the relevant expertise, if this may not be available, and technical advice or adequate resources and personnel for a swift deployment. In the education sphere, we've also sought to expand and strengthen national education systems to ensure that refugee children can be in school within three months of displacement and ensure the costs of including refugees in national education system are taken into into account in the development of relevant education sector plans. We've also sought to argue that ways need to be found to reinforce access to language training and ensure that refugee teachers can have access to training opportunities which can lead to qualification and to remuneration where possible. We're also seeking to encourage experts to work with us to focus on ways in which we can find innovative ways to expand access to higher education through scholarships and connected learning digital programs. In the realm of supporting host communities, discussions have focused on how to mobilize more resources for humanitarian and development assistance to host states. This potentially includes arrangements to, firstly, strengthen humanitarian financing, including in line with grand bargain commitments made at the international level, mobilising, secondly, substantive development support wherever possible for refugees and host communities, and thirdly, ensuring greater complementarity between relief and development programs. Among the possible suggestions for the program of action in this area We've identified potential actions which could include building capacities to identify and address data and evidence gaps related to refugees in their host communities, including household level data on welfare and poverty of refugees and local communities, mapping exercises to ensure and assess the evolutions of needs as well as contributions in order to inform medium and longer term development and financial assistance. Additional development assistance for refugee hosting communities, also to address the development impact of displacement on local populations, um, and also factoring the economic and social costs of hosting refugee populations into the programs of international financial institutions. In order to further support host communities, we've also looked at ways in which we can enhance economic inclusion and promote livelihood opportunities for all refugees in a way that benefits host countries and communities as well. And here we've sought to make the case that facilitating access to economic opportunities for refugees, including those pursuing third country solutions, those intending to return, um, and those who have already returned as as well as those who may integrate locally, can reduce dependence on assistance, ensure that refugee skills and knowledge are maximized, and contribute to the economic well-being of the local community as a whole. Possible suggestions for the program of action in this area include concrete measures to improve access to livelihoods, including encouraging companies to initiate or increase the hiring of refugees, developing financial products that can suit the refugee needs, the, the needs of refugee entrepreneurs, and establishing links with global supply, supply chains for products made by refugees via local social enterprises. We've also sought to discuss with relevant institutions ways to promote and facilitate access to a range of financial services for refugees, as well as vulnerable groups in host communities, notably microfinancing opportunities. In the fourth area addressed by the Comprehensive Refugee Response Framework, we tackle solutions, arguably one of the most sensitive and difficult issues, but one the one which may need the most concerted efforts. Aware that global return figures have been consistently low over recent years, where he grappling with the question of how we can support voluntary and sustainable turn in more, in return in more cases. States have committed themselves in the New York Declaration to working on solutions from the outset of a refugee situation, including a focus on sustainable return in safety and dignity. In addition to fostering the re-establishment of conditions that could permit that, international support can be critical to ensuring return is sustainable. And this needs multi year, multi partner strategies to support dis- development, peace building, and reconstruction. We've thus explored ways in which the Programme of Action could help ensure predictable and timely support to voluntary and sustainable return, including with respect to establishing the conditions to enable safe and dignified return, supporting the reintegration of refugees, participation of refugees in peace and political processes unassuring enjoyment of housing, land and property rights. Amongst the concrete suggestions we've looked at here is uh, building support for tripartite agreements, noting that these in many cases have provided a firmer basis to facilitate official recognition of priorities and barriers to return, as well as ensuring that refugee participation in the planning and uh, peace processes can be possible we're seeking also to encourage thinking around a support group with focus on contributing to improved conditions in return areas as part of a complementary mechanisms to support the implementation of tripartite agreements. We also see that a comprehensive regional refugee response needs technical, financial and other support to countries of origin to re-establish conditions. This means also support which can encourage the functioning of state institutions and establishment of rule of law, as well as the restoration of essential public services and social infrastructure. In looking further at returns, we also are seeking to try and encourage ways to expand access to resettlement. There needs to be a significant increase in resettlement places over time. and This in HCR's view will be an integral part of a successful comprehensive refugee response Amongst the suggestions for the programs of action in this regard, we've called for states progressively to increase the size of annual global resettlement programs with the aim of meeting by 2028 the annual global resettlement needs that are identified each year by UNHCR. And these at the moment are around 1 million per year, significantly more than annual global total resettlement numbers at present. To encourage more states to take part, we're going to continue to invest and encourage other states to support an emerging resettlement country's joint support mechanism. We're asking resettlement and other interesting states, therefore, to commit to promptly resettle refugees, including through the use of flexible and fit-for-purpose processing modalities, with a view to resettling at least 25% of annual targets that will be set for a particular refugee situation within six months of UNHCR referral dedicating at least 10% of their resettlement programs to emergency cases identified by HCR, including those with urgent or serious medical needs, expanding and strengthening the use of platforms for emergency processing of resettlement, and setting up a specific refugee resettlement core group in any given large-scale displacement and protracted situations in order to ensure a strategic and coordinated response In addition to resettlement opportunities, we're trying to encourage states to look further at ways to create safe and regulated complementary pathways for the admission of refugees to third countries. We believe this is a crucial way to facilitate access to protection and solutions for more people at present. This includes expanding and facilitating access to family reunification, leveraging private and community sponsorship, increasing access to educational opportunities in third countries, facilitating labour mobility uh, schemes, and data collection on an overall monitoring of complementary pathways. A further key question in the the solutions area, of course, must be how can we make local solutions work for more refugees in the communities in which they live? This is a particularly sensitive subject right now, particularly amongst large host countries, who in many cases feel they're already being asked too much, including many non-parties to the convention. So in this context, we've sought to argue in the thematic discussions that local solutions for some refugees need to form part of comprehensive multi-year and multi-partner solution strategies, particularly for those refugees who've formed close family or other ties with their hosting countries or communities. We want to seek to identify ways to support states to provide local opportunities as part of such comprehensive approaches. We want to encourage them also to support inclusive processes and naturalization procedures, as well as putting in place measures to support social harmony and address xenophobia. Concrete measures that have been discussed around the program of action in this regard include ways to uh, encourage relevant institutions including UNDP, UN Habitat regional institution, states, but also local actors at the level of local government and NGOs that provide support to refugees to work together to design programs which could be supported by international funding, which aim amongst other things to ensure that there is enough development and financial assistance to support national institutions in hosting areas to include refugees, to ensure that uh, we can support states to undertake comprehensive participatory needs assessments as well as realistically assess their capacity and factor this into development planning and to ensure that we can find, help states to find ways to ensure that people can secure durable legal status as well as residence rights and access to naturalisation in the longer term. These programmes of course need also to take into account the specificities of particular refugee needs and be sensitive to socio Uh, constraints in hosting communities. It is, however, a crucial part of durable solutions that states must be encouraged to address. I've sought today to give a very brief overview of some of the concrete elements that are under discussion in the context of work towards the Global Compact on Refugees. And to speak entirely frankly, the responses we've had from states so far have been varied. We've had cautious welcomes to many of the elements we've put forward, but there are clearly significant sensitivities around others. In some, we see significant potential to find ways forward to Mm -hmm. construct a program of action and a comprehensive refugee response framework that is going to secure state support, but we still have to work to make the case and to flesh out and build more support for many of these elements. Some of the key factors we see in our favor as we have these discussions is other new elements that the New York Declaration brings its emphasis on support for host communities to a whole-of-society approach, which acknowledges the contributions that local actors, NGOs, as well as refugees themselves can make, but also the focus on development assistance and the the importance of using this to address the longer-term needs of refugees as well as their host communities. In terms of next steps, we're looking forward now to the High Commissioner's Dialogue on the 12th and 13th of December which will take stock of all of the work done so far on the Global Compact on Refugees. In 2018, we'll have a series of formal consultations with states that will also seek to elicit responses to these elements once articulated in in a comprehensive Global Compact document for consideration. We're relying, frankly, on all of those who have a stake in refugee protection going forward to help us to try and ensure that the opportunity to develop and put forward a global compact on refugees that's workable, is anchored in principles, and furthers protection considerations and principles is going to be possible for us. I look forward to the opportunity to hear your views on this, Frank, and expressed from your viewpoint, including as experts working on the ground in many situations, and to drawing on your ideas for ways in which we can ensure that this is going to bring us forward. Thank you very much.